Welcome to the I Want to Like Whiskey podcast. Maybe you've had a bad experience with whiskey in the past or had very strong, neat spirit thrust upon you and surprisingly not enjoyed it. If so, then this is the conversation for you. I'm Rob Patchett, Global Whiskey Ambassador for the Cotswolds Distillery, and I'm joined by leading personalities in the drinks industry who agree that more people need to drink whiskey, but on their terms. We discuss whiskey cocktails, experiences, great people to follow in the industry, and how you can find your way into whiskey. Welcome to another episode of I Want to Like Whiskey podcast, and this week I have a very, very special guest, a man that I met quite recently when he came and visited the distillery with his wife Emily and his son Henry. Uh, he is the editor of Foodism, which is a very, very popular online platform, uh, magazine, website, and something that you should definitely be aware of, as well as escapism. A big fan of all things food and drink in London, and quite the authority on that as well. Welcome, Mike Gibson. How are you, mate? Thanks very much, Rob. I'm great. That was the best intro that I've ever had about me and what I do, which is great. Super succinct. Thanks, mate. I was I was trying to make sure that I got that on point and I'm trying to also make at some point a grand collage of all the intros I do for my guests on this podcast because you know this is what it's all about it's just about giving people the amplification that they need and deserve Exactly well pleasure to be here How are you Very well thank you dialing in from sunny Leytonstone East London And everything is treating you okay Yeah all good all good babies growing alarmingly quickly and uh yeah, all good. Cool. So for those people that don't know who you are, and shame on them, first and foremost, uh, do you want to give us two minutes on yourself, foodism, escapism, and everything else that you do within the industry? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So um, foodism is kind of the main thing that I do, which is a uh, London-based food and drink magazine. We've been operational since about 2013, late 2013, digitally, and it was kind of started out as a um, newsletter and website, and then we kind of felt confident enough to launch it in print in late 2014. Um, so since then, I've kind of done every rung on the ladder, really, on the way up, um, and then took over as editor in 2018, um, and then you know, steered it through some choppy waters, had a little bit of time out of production in um, kind of early 2020-ish. We relaunched it later that year um, and then more recently relaunched Escapism, which is more pure travel than foodism, obviously, but um, still with a little bit of food and drink culture in there too. So yeah, been working in the food and drink industry for about a decade now um, and have always kind of, foodism is, is I've always referred to it as a food and drink magazine rather than a food magazine. There's always been drinks content in there um, and we've always worked in the drinks industry as much as the food industry really. Um, Revenue-wise, that's where a lot of our um, incoming money comes in and and you know, as a result, it's both kind of a passion of mine, um, drinks, I'd say wine and, and dark spirits in particular, uh, but also, you know, it, it pays the bills to have us kind of across that too. So, um, yeah, I've, I've kind of always been fascinated about and, and passionate for, um, drinks. So coming on this is a, is a really nice excuse to come and get nerdy about whiskey and dark spirits and whatever else we're going to talk about. Looking forward to it. Amazing. And, you know, foodism, if, if no one's aware of it, do follow them on social media, but go to the website as well, because if I've always found that if you ever need something that is up to date and to the minute precise on what's going on in London with regards to drink scenes, breweries, restaurants, bar cultures, areas that are on the up, um, I have definitely been finding myself going to foodism more and more because, you know, London moves at such a pace that what happened six months ago is completely different to what the reality is today with regards to the food and drink scene. And it's always really difficult to navigate that. So having having a, a space where you can go and know that you're going to be up to date with where you need to be is very, very important. So um, kudos to you, Mike, and the team for doing that first and foremost. Thanks, Rob. And if you need um, a kind of marker of, of how quickly the industry does move, especially in London, um, my first uh, two features and the first of a print issue of Foodism, one was about chefs with tattoos and the other one was about Nightjar and this kind of reinvention of the speakeasy. Um, both of the dates it a lot because both of those are kind of so 
you know such well explored topics now things people know about and um yeah it seemed it seemed quite new and revolutionary in late 2013 to be able to go into a bar that was un, you know through an unmarked door and drink whiskey cocktails and stuff like that it's very um yeah pretty much just part of the fabric now yeah i was talking to jack who used to be part of the dandelion team way back mm -hmm. when and I said I talked to him about the fact that they were a part of this evolution of the bar culture that stepped away from the unmarked door and the sleeve garter and the braces and mm -hmm. everything like that. So to to precede that and you talking about Nightjar and uh, and when that was a, a revolutionary concept within London, it just shows the time frame of where the drinks culture has come in such a short amount of time. You know, ten years. Ten years is nothing on the grand scheme of things, but we've almost we've almost done a full evolution of what the drinks culture has been from the absolute elaborate to the absolute insane and then all the way back to people just wanting simplicity. Yeah, absolutely. I remember you know, early on in my career, this kind of really con concept heavy um, hotel bar uh, menu. I mean, Dandelion is obviously very much a, a kind of... Um, an exponent of that you know that that's had some of the most conceptual co cocktail lists it's possible to imagine really um over the years but it does feel like it's all getting to a bit more i don't know whether it's just that cocktail culture is so ingrained now people know what they're dealing with um and they know what they're looking for and they don't necessarily need to be kind of bowled over by by going to somewhere to drink um but you do get this high and low um contrast now where you still get some really conceptual stuff in amongst um more neighborhood bars i'd say especially in london that do very elegant um classic drinks with not you know not too much being done to them um but just great you know great recipes and great liquid yeah i mean we, we spoke about it as well about the fact that part of this timeline is the fact that now neighborhood bars people that started out in the night jars the dandelions you know the mr fogs whatever they've gone full circle to become bar owners and they've found that they can't operate within central London. So they've escaped to the more suburban areas of London. And now neighborhood bars aren't just your local boozer. You can go down the road and you can get yourself an old fashioned, a Sazerac, you can get yourself a decent cocktail. And that definitely shows and highlights where we've come in such a short amount of time in the drinks industry is that even in suburban areas, you can just walk down the road and know you'll get a decent drink. 100%. I, I might have mentioned to you, the one thing that I crave um, at the end of a working week is not necessarily a pint. I mean, I like beer and we do a lot of work in beer and there's, there's obviously loads of amazing beer to be drunk all over London, whether it's at a local pub or a brewery. But the thing that I absolutely crave at the end of a week, Thursday or Friday, walking back from Leightonstone Tube Station back to back to home is to slip in somewhere elegant and drink a couple of you know a proper stirred drinks um Leytonstone doesn't have a cocktail bar it has some good pubs it has an O'Neill's which I imagine you could probably get a Negroni but I don't know how good it would be um so yeah I, that's the that's the one thing I'm hoping that well if someone doesn't do it I might even have to at some point um I've never run a hospitality venue before but you know who knows if you're passionate enough about something you can learn surely passion is the ultimate driver in everything we do within this industry that is for damn sure Exactly. And maybe if I ever do it, I can come back on and talk to you about how to um, how to ruin yourself financially by opening a cocktail bar without being remotely prepared. Who knows? Or how to build an empire in a short amount of time. I'm always on the side of positivity. Exactly. I think it'll either be one or the other and nowhere in between. Okay, so Mike, you came to the distillery earlier on in the year. We had a, we had a wonderful day just walking around and nerding out, which is always my favourite thing. But I guess the overall question that I like to give to people is... What actually started that curiosity and that, that love of dark spirits? Why don't you tell me about that first and foremost? Absolutely. I mean, like a lot of people that were kind of active in the food and drink industry in what, the early 2000s, um, I was a young guy that was discovering um, this industry of, of mixed drinks and bartending and stuff like that that I didn't um that I wasn't really privy to before um you know we, we've we've talked at length and I'm sure you know you would have talked at length to, to a million people about how in the UK in in kind of maybe the late 2000s when you were asking for a mixed drink you were getting a, a lukewarm gin and tonic um and it really did change very quickly I mean I, I'm you know not necessarily thinking about central London here because I know that people like Dick Bradsall made you know some amazing drinks in the 90s and Salvatore Calabresi and people like that um but really in terms of that cultural cut through in the mainstream it did seem like 
it was the crest of a, a really exciting wave in the early 2010s where you had this kind of post-Mad Men era of people discovering they liked old fashions and, and you had Italian bartending culture coming over and people realizing they like Negronis and things like that. Um, and I was, like I said, a young food and drink journalist that was getting out and about as much as I could, doing things like, I mean, early memories that I have are things like London Cocktail Week, maybe in, in 2013 or 2014, where, um, you know, you can only get out to so many bars physically um, per week or per month or whatever. Um, but events like that that brought the best of this industry together and there's so much to explore. Like I said, the first feature I really did in in the first issue of Foodism when I was still a young writer was about Nightjar and about this speakeasy and shooting cocktails that they made and, and kind of being really bowled over by the creativity, the mix of influences, um, you know, the, this kind of melding of prohibition era cocktails and tiki culture and things like that. And there was just so much to explore. Um, it really kicked on. I'd say I, 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 I started getting into to bourbon as a lot of, again, I think a lot of people that come on here may talk about that being their, their gateway into dark spirits and scotch. Um, so I ended up going to, I loved Woodford Reserve bourbon. I knew the team that, that represented it a little bit and I knew some people on the team at Brown Foreman at the time as well, um, including um, a guy who's a really good mate of mine called Tom Vernon, who was the global brand ambassador at that time, and a guy called Nadal Ramini, who still works for Brown Foreman in uh, advocacy and, and does loads of brands now. But yeah, Woodford it w was just a liquid that I was really, I loved it. I loved the flavor profile. Um, I loved the events they did and, and things like that. So the chance came up to go with them and some bartenders to Versailles, Kentucky, which is where the distillery is located. And um, basically, well, I say to Kentucky, it was first in New York. So it was when they were just about to launch Woodford Rye. Um, and they kind of did, a lot of drinks brands do this, as you know, when, when they put on trips, it's a kind of where it's born slash where it lives um, angle. So where it lives for them was New York. And we did Dead Rabbit and Employees Only and a load of the bars that were on the Was 50th bars list at the time and probably still are. Um, and then we went to Kent, uh, well, went to Louisville and, and Versailles and did the distillery and some city culture there. And and it was, it was a real kind of turning point for me, I think, not only because it was going at kind of boots on the ground to, to the place where um, this amazing dark spirit that I already loved was made, which I've you know been fortunate enough to do loads of times since. Um, but it was, it was also, um, yeah, seeing it kind of in situ, whether in Louisville or New York, um, and seeing it with a load of bartenders. And I, I think there were probably five or six either bar bartenders or kind of bar professionals on that trip. Lance Perkins, who was at the time heading up the F&B for the London edition. Um, I think if memory serves, he ended up buying a cask for, directly from there for the edition, which basically funded the entire trip, uh, which is good for their perspective. <laughs> um, but Dustin McMillan, I can't remember where he worked at the time. And, you know, people like that, that you might remember that, that were great bartenders at that time. I think Dustin would have been Hicks back then, would he not? I mean, I know he was with he Mark was, Hicks yeah. for a long time, and he also, uh, he's still doing a lot with Black Cow as well. One of my favourites in the industry. Yeah, he's a great guy. Um, and I think really seeing it th almost through bartender's eyes, it wasn't really a press trip as 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 you'd traditionally think of it. I think it was me, a guy called Chris Hooten that was at the time at the Independent, and then it was just like five bartenders and a load of guys from Brown Foreman. Um and it really, I think what's what's been really key for me is not only being someone that drinks whiskey and, and likes it, but also someone that kind of has been able to unmap this kind of occasionally mystifying the way that the industry works over time. Um, and it really is, it's an industry that I feel really comfortable in um, and working in and really love exploring, um, whether that's with bartenders or at distilleries or things like that. Um, and it's kind of the reason that I, f I feel comfortable enough to take up an invitation to come and see you guys, for instance, and be able to look around a distillery. And, you know, from I'd, I'd position myself, I think, somewhere between kind of keen amateur and professional. I think doing a food and drink magazine means that you have to be a generalist a little bit um, and I always have thought of myself as someone that knows a lot about food and drink industry culture generally but you know who's, who's really passionate to explore more about certain things that I like and th this industry is full of people that are so so learned and passionate and have so many you know decades of experience writing about wine and spirits in a way that you know I kind of couldn't really ever touch but equally I, I love the way the industry works and and things like that I think are kind of for 
instrumental in it. So that was a great trip. And and after that, I felt like I had a really good grounding in Bourbon. Um, you know, we went to the Cooper, the Brown former Cooperage, which is an amazing place as well. Um, and I think I brought that back to London and started being more interested in like I said, dark spirits more generally, used, used the kind of bourbon, which I was starting to demystify myself a little bit as a good jumping off point and, and started to explore from there. Um, and then, you know, obviously Scotch came along with that as well. That is, um, that is insane because, you know, for you to go on that journey from 2013 onwards, you know, whilst it does seem quite recent in the grand scheme of things of people being into whiskey, the change of the overall category and the bar scenes in that 10 years means that you will have seen the evolution of not only Woodford Reserve, but also just whiskey and bourbon brands within the culture as well. And how their messaging has changed, how their strategy has changed, their serve suggestions. Um, because like I said at the beginning, you know, you've been at the forefront of what the drinks and food industry has been doing for quite a long time. And you've been able to survey all of that. So I guess, you know, there is a question in here, which is, do you want to just talk on, you know, what you saw back in 2013 when you went on that first trip and just where we are today and what's happened in between i suppose i think it's really interesting in drinks that um and dark spirits and to an extent wine making as well where you have this really historic um industry from a production perspective and then you have running i mean really you guys make whiskey in pretty much the same way it would have been made what 100 years ago even longer yeah you know with these stills that have made that have been that are made by these heritage uh, manufacturers in exactly the same way they would have been made 100 200 250 years ago um, but I think concurrently to that you've got this um, sense of a really dynamic industry that's run by really creative people that's modernizing all the time so I think it's a really interesting contrast the way that the the production is not you know beyond I think things like mindset and how you do things and certainly sustainability as well I think broadly speaking it is a, it is a kind of a distillery really is a living relic but um Again, I think the way that the bartending industry intersects with with kind of manufacturing and things like that, um, and shapes the way the consumer is ready or not for these these different styles of liquid and things like that, I think that's that's something that I've always found really kind of fascinating and, and inspiring. Um, and yeah, I think that's the thing that's changed really. I think there are kind of incremental changes in distilling and and drinks production, um, but I think the the real dynamism is how that stuff is communicated to the consumer whether that's via the bar industry or via marketing or events or publications or things like that um so yeah I'm, i mean the you know from your guys perspective i think english whiskey is the biggest thing that's that's been very um that's changed a lot since since i was first on the scene i mean i, I don't think i could have it may be somewhere like penderian which is obviously welsh but not yeah. similar you know it's non-scotch united kingdom whiskey um that might have been just kind of breaking through we might have that, that might have been a brand that we might have covered back in the day but really since then it's been the lakes and you guys and, and filey bay and some other people that have been doing some amazing um liquid out of england which is a really cool thing to have to have kind of discovered while i've been working in the industry I had, a, I had a conversation with, uh, you probably do know of him, uh, James Golding, who's the executive chef for the Pig Group. Mm -hmm. um, super nice guy. And, you know, he's really pushing forward not only the sustainability approach of um, just cooking and premium style restaurant menu style approaches within the kitchen, but also just championing producers within the UK. And I sort of said to him, I said, you know, whilst chefs have been searching for small producers and independent farmers and people of that nature for such a long time and championing them it hasn't really been at the forefront of the drinks industry for much longer than the last five or six years where people have actually sought out small local producers because there haven't been that many let's be honest but also just the capability and the accessibility through social media to be able to reach out to your local distillery and go hey can i come around and have a look i've got you on my bar menu and so I think we're starting to see that change in mentality of not only using local, but also just using what's on a, what's what's British, what's got story and working closely with small producers. And I guess, you know, again, you must have seen the rise of that. Like you say, you saw Penderin in the very early stages and then obviously it's just gone from there. And it's quite a fascinating change as well. 
definitely. I think also the, um, I think you're right to say that before maybe the last 10, 15 years that, that it was, um, you know, it's been a bit of a monopoly really. And you have these heritage brands that are, that are super old, but they're, you know, most of them belong to multi-billion pound conglomerates not that there's anything wrong with that that's the way our industry works and, and you know generally speaking we're, we're totally happy to to do our work within that um but i think the other thing is that there are a few kind of early brands that that really paved the way for this idea that you can start a small independent brand and if you know maybe if not get to the size of a mccallan or a glenfiddich you can you, you can find success and you can you can find enough success to give up your day job and launch yourself a new career and things like that i think that's really important i think without that um idea you know you might have a few people home brewing and home distilling but without the idea that they can actually make it make it something that's financially viable find a consumer base increase revenue over time you know people would give it a go for a couple of years and then probably get bored and move on um you know, you guys are obviously an amazing example of that and someone that really came to it with a business first approach, but equally that was, you know, that loved the area, loved the spirit um, and wanted to do something cool. And I think that's, I think that's really, really important for, you know, people to see. I don't know who the early, I mean, even people like Brewdog in, in beer, there are so many brewers that I talk to that say the first craft beer in inverted commas they can remember drinking was Punk IPA, the one that, that made them realise oh, this can actually taste different from what you can find in the pub or the off-license. I think that's, I think those little watershed moments are really important too. I couldn't agree more because I remember when Brewdog was pre-Tesco and they were sort of selling it from the back of a van and, you know, doing it on small batch and things like that. Hey, when, when brands set out, do they set out automatically to try and be bought out by a conglomerate? Maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, you know, a band will start out small doing back rooms and then eventually if they're good and people like them en masse, then they will get to a point where they're very big. Now, you'll always have those recalcitrant people who go, oh, well, they've got too big and they've sold out. And it's like, okay, yeah, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're good at what you do, more people will enjoy what you do. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree, you know, it's always nice to be at the early stages of these things and when they grow and they become absolute behemoths or not, it's still fascinating to watch people's journey. Yeah. And I think with them, um, it may be, may be slightly different in beer because I do think beer is the most analogous section of the industry to that kind of um, bands playing basement clubs going onto arenas thing. Um, but in spirits, I mean, wh- one thing I also love about the spirits industry has always been that... Um, the biggest brands in the world still do really cool things. And, and bartenders, I think, are a great um, yardstick to, to, to measure that by. So you'll find, you know, you'll find bartenders that are really excited by new releases from the biggest brands in spirits, really. Um, you find, you know, cool brands like Patron doing finding ways to innovate, despite the fact they're a massive global brand that you can find pretty much anywhere. They're still doing their bit to find new kind of ways to innovate. You know, same thing with someone like McAllen doing, you know, redoing the visitor centers, focus a bit more on fine dining and that being a cool, a really cool, you know, from my perspective, as you can imagine, I find that a really cool thing to watch for in, in whiskey, the way that the, the, the customer experience on the distillery is being rethought all the time. The fact that money has been put into um you know sharpening up the F&B offering and, and things like that I mean I went to the last Scotch distillery I went to was the Glen Turret which you know is is now getting some really cool recognition and a Michelin star for real fine dining um I think that kind of stuff's really cool too um yeah it, it's nice that it doesn't get to this critical mass where um people get too big and then no one likes them because I think if the I think that's one thing that's good despite all of the of the billions of pounds that are in this industry I think if you do good things then people people will kind of take you as you are, which I do, I've always thought is a really cool thing. Um, and a, a nice facet of working in the industry as we do from a commercial basis as well as as, as consumers individually. I agree. And I think you, you hit on a really good point in there as well, is the fact that so many distilleries can do so many different things. You don't have to automatically just go, right, I need to be huge, I need to be everywhere, and then I can get a Michelin star, and then that's it's not the only pathway you can go. Everyone can offer something different, and that is automatically drawn from the area as well. So it's it, I always say that distilleries are very much where wine was 30 years ago in many different ways that I've said, agnosium, so I won't go into it, but one way in which they are is agriturismo. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you're driving around Italy, stopping off at wineries and you can get a few flagons or a few bottles to take home, mm-hmm. that's where distilleries are now because automatically, as soon as they walk through the door, 
and they try your gear and they see what you're doing and then they buy a couple of bottles, you've got a brand ambassador walking away from your distillery automatically. Mm -hmm. And I think however you want to execute that, be it fine dining, be it a small cafe, be it an intimate table, barrel top tasting, however you want to do it, all you want to do is just give people a little look behind the curtain so that they can understand what you're doing. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I think Italy is a really good example of that. Similarly, you know, American wine culture, I think, is great at that. The the, the tasting room and this kind of um, on-the-ground community of like-minded, you know, winemakers and people like that. Um, and I totally agree. I think that's where, you know, that's where distillers are doing well if they're putting, if they're putting money and expertise and, and energy into that on-site experience. Because it really is, you know, we'll never, hopefully never get to a point where distilling culture is not about an inherent sense of place i mean that's the way that's always our way into to what we think is interesting you know product aside obviously product is great and and you can find product anywhere but it's always those on-site experiences in situ where you where you start really to get an understanding of what what a brand is about um and it's just another reason to go somewhere and drink great whiskey or wine or, or whatever it may be as well exactly my biggest fear however is that we have a sideways moment where somebody makes a movie about driving around England, going to English whiskey distilleries, and then you have a, a Paul Giamatti-style character who goes, I'm not drinking in English fucking whiskey. Because you remember when that film came out and he started going on about, Absolutely, I'm not yeah. drinking Merlot, and then Merlot sales just plummeted because everyone just repeated what he said. I'm like, oh, if we could just get someone who's going to actually really accentuate how good English whiskey is, then that would be a great help. I mean, obviously we've got Clarkson on our doorstep and... Most people love him, some people hate him, and vice versa in the equal proportion. So I don't think he should be the face of English whiskey. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes our, our category just needs a little bump and a little bit of a nod from somebody who can just say, you know what, These, English whiskey is a, is a category that is focused on quality alone. And then if that story can get perpetuated by a force outside of our control, then it just helps fortify our future as quality producers. Hundred percent. I think. Um, I think there's a benefit to to launching now in this time and in this culture because I, I do think there's like there's this groundswell of people that that are more than happy to make their own decisions and take things at face value and not live by this idea of receive wisdom. And when I think, um, you know, there's I think there's a certain generation before us that think by definition any blended whiskey is not as good as any single malt whiskey yeah and if you really ask them why that was i don't think they'd be able to really tell you an answer it's just this received wisdom that they've been living by for a while whereas i've you know i've got a dram of compass box spice tree on the go and it's great you know it's fantastic um so i think that you know with english whiskey i think that's that's very much the same i think if you do this the sense of place really well if you do the visitor experience really well if and you know more than anything if the liquid is good which it is um, at pretty much any English whiskey distillery that I've been to. Um, I do think you've got more often than not, you've got people that will just take that in kind and, and, and be super happy to drink it and excited rather than thinking, well, it's not scotch and scotch is the best one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That is a little bit of an antiquated perspective. So Mike, I mean, obviously you told me about Woodford Reserve and that sounded like a great experience, but whether or not that is your favorite whiskey experience, I don't know. So I guess what would be your best whiskey moment? Well, I think if you move on from, I mean, you'd struggle to beat being in Versailles, Kentucky on a hot, you know, late summer day, um, drinking with reserve and eating lobster. But generally, if if you're talking about scotch, so I drank bourbon for a while. I knew about bourbon cocktails. I kind of, like I said, I demystified that category a little bit for myself and I knew the flavor profile and I was happy with it. Scotch was still something that was a little bit you know, I liked it when I drank it, but I, but I really didn't know a huge amount about it. Um, that kind of changed on a trip with my best friend, Charlie, to Edinburgh. Um, I think it was 2015. Sounds about right. Um, and we were, I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's a great bar in Hope Street called Uska Bay. Um, have you ever been? Do you know? Do you know that? I haven't been. Unfortunately, I was there two weeks ago and I didn't go much to my shame. So I apologize. Well, I'm sure you're in that neck of the woods every now and again so maybe next time you can go um but it's kind of it's it's a i think it's a restaurant and bar it's got i think it's got three floors this was a long time ago um and i i, I believe it's definitely still open uh, and it really is it's it was one of these things where um i was there on a work trip but this was a totally you know extracurricular thing we just wanted to 
to I think we it was maybe post dinner or we were just looking for something to do for the night we'd looked up right if we're in Edinburgh we should drink whiskey where's the best place to do it um so we looked up this bar called Uska Bay um which I believe is Gaelic for whiskey um and we went downstairs it was really quiet and it was just a guy at the bar um sat at the bar we we sat next to him um and there was a bartender there a guy called Michael youngish guy I think he was probably early 30s at the time um and he was just this guy I think was a dram or two in and we just sat next to him um and it was one of those things you don't get in in the UK very often where you just sit at a bar um chat to the person next to you chat to the bartender but that was that was what we were in the mood for so we rocked up we sat at the bar and the um the bartender kind of asked us what was our you know what was our background what did we like what did we not like and we were reasonably frank with him we we said you know I really like bourbon I, I know where I'm at with that I'm kind of that's the pl- the flavor profile I gravitate towards Charlie was a little bit more into peated whiskey but again you know had knew some things he liked but didn't know a huge amount about the category um so he goes fine he starts us off with a couple of jams the guy to the right um was a couple in like I said we looked over at him we were like hey how you doing I'm Mike this is Charlie um I don't remember his name but he, he was a guy from Tennessee so we asked him what he was doing um in Edinburgh and he said well I'm from Tennessee but I hate American whiskey I absolutely hate it so I've never been to Tennessee by the way so you have to put up with a kind of broad Kentucky no, you were spot um, on accent spot on. but yeah he said I hate American whiskey I hate it scotch whiskey is my scotch whiskey is my passion so I'm here for three weeks I did Edinburgh I did Glasgow and then I did two weeks exploring the distilleries all around and then I'm back here and then I fly back so we were like, okay, this guy is super into his whiskey. Um, how into his whiskey he was would become clear over the next probably hour or two. Um, so he was, like I said, a couple of drams down. Um, and the bartender, a guy called Michael, was kind of starting him on on the next one. Um, and it became quite obvious he was drinking some reasonably punchy stuff. Um, that you know, Uskabe has an amazing, amazing whiskey list. It has everything from the kind of drams that that Michael was dishing out to us, which was I think probably Abelor Twelve and and Alcantosh and American Oak or things like that. That were that's what I remember drinking. That was as you can understand, like super bourbony and maybe bourbon barrel matured and um, yeah. super kind of accessible flavor profile from my perspective. Um, but this guy was he ended up being four or five drinks down, and he was like. Right, what am I drinking next, Mike? What am I drinking next? So the, the bartender was kind of looking across and he was like, right, what can I give this guy next? Because he's been having some quite punchy stuff. So he went, he was like, well, you could have this. You could have this Glenfiddich from 1974. You could have this thing. And he was like, he stopped for a minute. And the guy, it was, I don't know whether he did it on purpose. And he was just so, if he did, then it was absolutely masterful. The way he was totally happy to give these 23 24 year old guys drams that were six or seven quid each and you know cater to this tennessee uh, scotch whiskey fan that had been probably racked up about two and a half grand in three or four drams so far and was looking to tr- looking to try some even even more punchy stuff next so he was like you could try you could try this you could try that you could and he stopped and he went mm, like that and the guy just leaned i remember the guy leaned forward and he was like what's that what's that one and he was like well We've got a pre-war Lagavulin here, but it's a bit, you know, he was like signifying that it might be a bit punchy even for the bill that he was racking up. The guy was just without hesitation. He just went, what's that about the pre-war? Immediately, absolutely sold at it. Completely sold. So the guy I've got, I, I will, maybe I'll, I'll send to you after. I think I found it the other day. Um, this, the lineup that he drank and the lineup that we drank, I think I might have as well, but it's nowhere near as, as interesting. But it was like probably the, 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 youngest was in the 60s the oldest was i think 1937 or something like that um there was even an ardbeg in there which i hope i hope he drank last to put it that way um but yeah he was just i think so so i like i said i'll always remember this for like the first whiskey moment um a because it was really funny so the guy um the guy settled up his tab after I think six or seven drams. Um, it was probably nine o'clock at this time. I think it was pretty much just just still the two of us and this guy in the in the barks. I think it was probably a Tuesday night or something like that. The guy went, "Oh right, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Thank you, Mike. That's been amazing." Um, so I can add the check. Michael was like, "Yeah, here you go." Like gave him the check. The guy finished up, um, paid. Uh, and then I just remember hearing this, this, like there's a little spiral-ish staircase. We were on the, I think the lower ground floor of the basement. 
and this feet up to the up the spiral staircase to the exit michael the bartender was just completely motionless like basically not even saying anything and this guy just goes out you hear the bar you hear the door open then close again and then michael the bartender just goes because <laughs> he just basically put this guy through his paces on an absolute masterclass of the like oldest and rarest whiskey and he'd walked out absolutely thank you know thankful full of gratitude for paying probably i don't know i don't know six and a half grand something like that on the tab <sighs> in the space of two hours um and i mean american so imagine the tip on that yeah um but what I loved about it, like I said, it was I loved it because it was kind of slightly cartoonish and outlandish in a, in 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 that way. But the other thing I loved was that this guy, I don't know whether he still works there, I don't know how long he was there for, but our bartender was so adept at guiding us through really the real accessible end of the spectrum and not trying to upsell us and not trying to, you know, not trying to go, well, you know, I know you guys are young, but this this thing's 30 quid a dram and you'll never forget it. He was super happy to just guide us through things but you know talk to us about things that we'd liked and gave us pretty much as much attention as you know this this guy from Tennessee um that was that was not drinking accessible whiskey should we say um so that that's always been a real that was a real eye-opener for me and I guess both both of those ways it was had the guy from Tennessee not been there it would have been a really cool experience I would have mapped out a little bit more about what I liked and we'd have walked away super happy to have spent 30 or 40 quid and, and really had a great experience but the guy next to us I think contextualized how far there is to go um with this liquid you know how committed some people are you know even if they're from a totally different country that makes its own whiskey to uncovering um you know distilled spirits and and how geeky people can get and how much of their money they're you know they're prepared to part with and and like i said leave absolutely happy to do so um so that will always yeah that'll always go down as the kind of whiskey moment for me if that ever gets beaten i think it'll be a good you know it, it'll be a good one good on the bartender as well for curating not only a selection of whiskeys for the american guy but also just navigating you guys and you know having no qualms between dealing with the two as well that is the beautiful thing about whiskey it does not matter where you are in your journey you can be ready to drop seven or eight grand on a, a selection of whiskies or you can be there just to sort of start out and drop a couple of quid it's not about the money it's about where you are in your journey and finding the right people to help curate that journey that is a cool story i like that exactly and some you know some people would be forgiven for thinking that whiskey is is full of snobbery um and i think experiences like that people like that people that you and i work with every day are, are total proof as to that not being the case yeah um, and it really is it is something for everyone it's not it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be out of touch and inaccessible it can just be um it can be concurrently that and also the most out of this world thing you can ever spend your money on yeah. um, and most people i guess are, end up somewhere in the middle and, and and really love it exactly i mean when i was talking to becky paskin on a previous episode she said you know she's had the finest of the fine experiences at distilleries and things like that but one of her fondest memories was literally just sharing a bottle of shivers 12 that you can get anywhere in the world with a bunch of pals and it was the pals and not the whiskey that made it so special exactly okay well that is a cool story and that is going to go down as one of the best ones we've had on the podcast so far but leading into our next question it really is circled around you know whiskey serves that you know i i spoke about this with uh james golding the chef and you know he was talking about at the end of a service on a hot day in weather like we've got right now sometimes a neat dram just isn't what you need as a refreshing style but saying that we all just like to have a refreshing drink and it might contain whiskey and so i guess mike tell me is there a way in which you enjoy your whiskey that isn't neat or with water that is maybe a little bit unconventional i don't know about me specifically i mean I, I do like a whiskey and ginger every now and again um i know the people in the whiskey industry that still like to to mix with coke i mean when you put tens of billions of dollars into uh, engineering something with the perfect flavor it's i guess it's not surprising that it still tastes good after all these years but um i don't know i mean i talked to uh jensen button from he's got a, a whiskey brand called coach built yes um that he does with a guy called george kind of whiskey industry um guy that's a, a great blend of whiskey really good um he's not too front and center of it as well which is nice um but he says he loves coach built in a paloma which i can imagine would work quite well um me, I don't actually know. I mean, maybe a highball every now and again if I've got some soda water hanging around, but um, 
I don't know that I'm that unconventional. I do know that you love a Paloma though, Mike, so maybe maybe I suggest a new make Paloma. That could be a great shout. Yeah, I did make a couple of Palomas yesterday with um, tequila, but yeah, that could that could definitely be a shout. Where would one get hold of new make whiskey if, if people don't know distillers and, and can't get it on the sly? <laughs> uh, you can buy it online. I know that um, you can buy it at our distillery shops and then there are other brands that do it. I'm not just sort of here plugging Cotswolds all the time. I am actually, um, but I know that Highland Park they sell their new make, and then yeah. a really good one to look for would be Holyrood Distillery yeah, up near yeah. Edinburgh. They do incredible new makes that are very applicable. Interesting, cool. There we go, new make Palomas. Let's get after it, people. Um, all right, next question, Mike. I don't like whiskey. How are you going to get me into whiskey? I would say so. So something that I've always thought is. Um, I love flavors and obviously I'm I'm into food as much as I'm into drink and, and I work in food as much as drink. Um, but I absolutely love specific flavors, whether it's wine or whiskey or food or, or things like that. Um, something that I absolutely love doing. It's not, it's not necessarily something that I'm, that I'm encouraging everyone to do, but when I did WSET level two earlier in my career, um, I think the biggest thing that that did for me was got me to trust my palate and got me to trust um, picking out individual flavors that I liked and qualities of anything, whether it's wine or spirits or even food. Um, so what I would what I would suggest is is start isolating flavors that you know you like and not being too afraid to get specific with them. So for me, you know what I started off really liking is the um, kind of buttery toffeed notes of of bourbon you know like i said that's not it's it's totally accessible everyone that drinks bourbon will pick those out but i really like that and i knew that when i first started getting into scotch if i kind of followed those individual flavors then i'd end up drinking something that i really liked um now that's kind of changed i've got i've I've grown to love whiskey and other dark spirits with these kind of fresh tropical fruit flavors and also things like fatty nuts like macadamia and hazelnut notes um and then kind of warming spices dried fruits things like that are are a little lower down the pecking order but still there um so what i you know i think if you're in a bar you can definitely tell a bartender to I mean, even if you like, you know, you like the smokiness of mezcal and you might get started with a peated whiskey that's got, you know, a little bit of that creeping smoke around the edges, something like that. I think talking to people that know spirits and, and, you know, bartenders being the most obvious um, people to talk to within that, I think, like I said, even whether it's other spirits, even whether it's gin, I'm sure you can find parallels there of just saying, this is the kind of thing that I like. So what would you you know, what would you suggest that I try? Like I said, with the with the kind of whisker based story, that's definitely what I did there. Um and yeah, that like I th- I think you can I think you can't go wrong with that really. I think everyone loves particular flavours even if they don't know it. Um and everyone can um learn to kind of pick up things a little bit more and, and crucially like I said to trust their own palate. Um and I think once you start doing that, I think that's the biggest single way you can demystify the entire category really in one fell swoop is just actually going, I'm not looking for this received wisdom. I'm not looking for things that other people have told me is good. I'm just looking for flavors first and foremost. And then you, when you when you unmap it a little bit more, you can get into things like body and mouthfeel and things like that. But I think starting off, it really is just what flavors do I know that I like, whether that's in whiskey or in other spirits. Um, and then kind of asking, you know, asking people who know what kind of thing to look for, um, or, you know, maybe shopping. I know that the whiskey exchange and some other, um, retailers do a really good job of, of actually kind of catering to consumers that know that exact kind of thing. And, and you'll be able to say, I like, you know, rich and dried fruits, or I like spicy whiskey or something like that. I think that's a really, that's a really great thing for the industry that people are starting to cotton onto that. And I think, yeah, like I said, you can't, you can't go wrong if you go flavor first. Know your flavors, have some curiosity and go and ask some people that know a little bit more than you and they won't serve you the wrong way. Yeah, I like that. And I think that's the way it is. Just, yeah, challenge yourself and ask people that know what they're talking about. Exactly. And I think I think in, in stuff that you read as well, if you, if you read magazines and online publications and things like that, I think something that's really nice alongside that is I feel that in both wine and spirits, there's definitely a move towards simplifying the language um and making the language like i said more literal so i remember i was um once i was editing a um christmas brochure for berry brothers and rudd 
um, which is obviously first and foremost a wine merchant, but also has a lot of spirits brands. If people don't know it, um, it, it owns spirits brands. It distributes spirits and things like that. And I remember I was editing um, a the, the Christmas brochure that they do every year, um, and I had tasting notes from winemakers, um, or sorry, wine wine writers, um, masters of wine, or, or or spirits writers and things like that. And some of them are amazing, and some of them were that kind of antiquated grandiose language that I find really off-putting and I'm sure consumers can't even begin to get their head around I mean something like you know it's a symphony but it's a quartet not an orchestra or something like that I just think I don't know how you how how you start to actually apply that to a liquid if you don't if you're not if you haven't been reading wine journalism for 30 years but something else that I loved in in a different tasting note about a peated malt whiskey was it was described as um spent fireworks and wax tent canvas and actually despite the fact that that's a little bit outlandish as a tasting note i mean you're i'm sure you're like me you can you can imagine exactly that kind of exactly what picture that paints in terms of the flavor profile um so i think i think it's super important people that are writing about whiskey and talking about it are kind of going like i said going flavor first talking about things as they taste as they you know talking about the nose how it smells talking about the palate as it tastes and you know you can dig in super you can you know like i love um i quite often come back to a flavor note of um umeboshi which is this type of japanese salted or pickled plum i quite often get it with like high ester pot still rums in the caribbean but also whiskey as well there's definitely a kind of japanese whiskey element i don't know whether that's just the if it grows it goes element and the fact that there's a lot of that in japanese cooking but things like hibiki 17 when i've tried that in the past i always find that there's that kind of pickle plum note so i'm not saying you can't dig down super deep into that and get really esoteric with it which i absolutely love and i'm sure you, you do too but i can still if you say that to someone if you say this whiskey's got a real kind of like salted plum note people can still understand basically what you mean by that and might find it super intriguing and might taste it and go yeah i, I, I get that and i also get this but yeah, like I said, I think if you go with flavour, um, you can't go wrong. And that's kind of in terms of what you like and what you buy, but also how you communicate about it as well. Yeah, you need to get to the level that people understand. And like you say, if you start talking about quartets and symphonies, you're way off because most people who are just starting their journey in spirits, I'm sorry, they just don't know about those things. Whereas whenever I communicate, I talk about dessert because nine out of 10 people have had pudding. They might not like it, but they've had pudding. So, uh, yeah, I agree with that. But I guess as well as bringing people in through that method of talking about, you know, flavors and curiosity, do you reckon there's some serves that help with that? So the best serve to give to a non-whiskey or a a person that's just had a bad experience? Yeah, I would definitely say, I mean, I go back to the old fashioned. I think um, I love this idea that classic cocktails, whether they're um, mixed with citrus or just bitters, are, are, are these four elements of water that's normally in the in the form of ice spirit sweetener and and something bitter or sour um and all of those things you you find all all of those in kind of in balance in every great classic cocktail whether it's a sazerac like we've talked about before or a gin sour or something like that um and i think an old-fashioned specifically for whiskey is such a great i mean i actually don't drink a huge number of old fashions these days I, i absolutely loved it when i was I love that serve when I was just getting into cocktails and maybe it is a little bit, you know, it's, it's kind of classy, but it's, it's also uncomplicated really. But I think it's uncomplicated in a great way because it's, it, it just amplifies um, all of the things that you, that you kind of later understand are the things that you like about whiskey. And that's certainly how I felt about it. Um, first and foremost, you know, the sweet part, the bit, the bitter kind of spice part that comes from the bitters um, and, and, you know, all of those things being in great harmony in that drink. That really was what got me to thinking, well, if I like that, then I'll probably like the neat liquid. Yeah. And, you know, and it kind of went on from there. So I think, I'd, I mean, probably um, probably a bourbon old-fashioned, really. I mean, if everyone goes down my route, then, then yeah, you can't go too far wrong. You go bourbon old-fashioned, then you try bourbon, then you try scotch. That's, that's I think, a surefire way to do it. That's where I went. I, I did that. I was uh, I was JD and Coke, JD and lemonade, and then they were too sweet for me. So I started drinking old fashions, and then I sort of lowered the amount of bitters and sugar. And then it was mm-hmm. whiskey on the rocks, and then it was just scotch. And then you know yeah. we are where yeah. we are. So I think I think that as much as you know the old fashioned might be I don't know. I mean I I definitely don't drink them as much as I used to like you, just because I probably drank too many. 
But for those people that want to get into whiskey, that is a great conduit to giving you a better idea of what whiskey can be. 100%. And, and like we were talking about, you know, better bars being available outside of the centre of big cities. You, know, you can get a decent old-fashioned in, maybe not a pub, but certainly a neighbourhood cocktail bar, you know, way outside of London these days. It's not like these things are um, rarefied and hard to get hold of. They're super accessible now too. Yeah, I mean, when I started in bars back in the early 2000s, I remember, you know, I, we were all working off Dale de Groff, you know, the craft of the cocktail, and looking at the old-fashioned and going, I do what with sugar and this cranky bottle with a yellow top that I've never seen before? And mm. I do what with... Le- Are you sure I don't muddle orange into it? That feels like it's the right thing to do. And then, you know, flash forward 20, 22 years, and it's like, yeah, you can get an old-fashioned wherever you want. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, um, as well as old fashions, I am also quite the highball fan. And today, more than ever, uh, there is an abundance of mixes and combinations and things that you can get to enjoy whiskey. You know, things that we've spoken about here before, coconut water. I always harp on about the ease of appetizer for those that, you know, don't really know about whiskey but want to mix it with something. You seen anything out there mixing wise with whiskey that you would go, yeah, give that a crack? I think just highballs. I think you're exactly right. Like highball is another one that, in a totally different way from the old fashioned, it almost, I guess, almost the opposite of accentuates whiskey's profile. It slightly dilutes it, but in a way that makes it loads more accessible. So, if you have a peated whiskey in a highball, you know the smoke is nowhere near as intense as it is in. In the, if you just had it in a dram, but you kind of start to understand that flavour profile around around the edges. So yeah, I'd say highball definitely. And then if you can kind of either get creative with like a gently flavoured soda or something like that, or even you know do things like make your own spirit, uh, make your own soda, or make your own syrup or something like that, then you can really start to start to have fun with that too. But that's yeah, that I mean I'm seeing that Dawn Davies from the Whiskey Exchange just wrote us. Um, a great insight piece in food is all about the drinks you should be drinking this summer and highballs is, is what everyone's talking about really um, you know with every kind of whiskey um, and every, for every kind of occasion but especially in summer yeah because you don't really want to be drinking a, um, a well sometimes you do but you don't generally don't want to be drinking a dram of lukewarm whiskey at three in the afternoon the sun beating down do you want something a little bit more refreshing I've said it before and I'll say it again. If gin was promoted as a only drink at room temperature and neat, no one would touch it. So, um, exactly. you know, whiskey's just been behind itself for a few years, but mixing it, highballs, that's the way to go. Now, the last section I'm really excited about with you, Mike, simply because you are, you are the editor of one of the best publications for all of these next questions, the punch-up section, which talks about where we want to who we want to talk about, where we want to talk about, what we want to talk about. And when it comes to those things, that's literally your daily job. So when I sent you these questions, I was very excited to see what you thought, simply because if anyone knows, Mike knows. So Mike, in the punch-up section, who, what and where needs to be on people's radar at the moment? Well, I would say when I was thinking about this, um, you know, there's a huge spectrum to draw from, but something something that I've seen quite a lot lately um, and know a few people that are involved in it is the Our Whiskey Foundation, which I, I just think is, I know you've talked to Becky and you've talked to Millie and those guys are, are, are both heavily involved in that. Um, I really think it's just so refreshing from a from a kind of publication perspective and from someone that communicates about these things to see to see this part of the industry and this category be democratized in in real time and and you know we love that in in foodism we've always tried to use what we do as a um as a platform to talk about things that are being democratized and and, and things that are that were previously only available to a certain number of people to be available to everyone um and we've just done you know we just did a cover to cover women in food issue that's out now um and we talked about some amazing people in you know in spirits and food and drink and restaurants and things like that as well um molly my my associate editor has done she's been putting in work for about a year and a half into an online series we do called insatiable that's all about women in the industry um and i just think yeah i think it's so needed um and you know you and i will and it really is that last 10 15 years that you've even had i think people that don't look like you and me or maybe you and you and me that are 20 years older that feel comfortable enough to work in this industry and feel comfortable enough to put their opinions across without being shouted down and yeah. i think that's you know i think what they're doing is 
I don't know, it's so important for so many people. Um, you know, it really is. It, it's it's without that, then you don't get as many female distillers and blenders and, and people working in the industry, writing in the industry, things like that. So um, I think, yeah, I think that's that's really the one that stuck out for me. There's no amount of, I mean, we can talk about it every single episode. And I know Becky's just brought out her own podcast with Edrington. But people do need to be aware of our whiskey because our whiskey, as well as being a whiskey subscription, it's also got a mentor program. They uh, they did the many faces of whiskey in which they gave people free collateral to use in their marketing to show more diversity. So it wasn't just dusty old white men with beards. It was actually showing what the true face of whiskey looks like today. So I think you're spot on with that one because the more amplification Becky and our whiskey with Millie can get, then I'm all for it. 100%. And we, you know, we use those um, images in, in Foodism next to Dawn's piece um, completely by chance, which is another thing that I think is um, is super interesting that they're doing, you know, putting those stock images online. So people that are looking for, I just think, you know, you and I work in the industry and there's loads of, there's loads of really interesting initiatives that people, that consumers and people that are just buying spirits or going to restaurants will never really see they you know they'll they might see the indirect effects of that but as consumers they'll never really see it but i think that's i don't think that's the case for something like our whiskey because it really is it might be that in 30 years time you know the gender divide in whiskey is totally you know it's, it's totally equal and i think that's something that really has cut through and that's something that can you know yeah that can that can really change the makeup of you know people going to a whiskey bar or or people sitting around a table and talking about whiskey and feeling like they have a they have you know, equity to talk about it and, and share opinions and things like that and I think that's it really is something that's happening in real time it's super dynamic and it's, it's really inspiring too and the momentum behind it means that it's never going to stop and it's only going to grow which is the most important thing that right now we're seeing the foundations but that still means that it's going to it's going to carry on it's going to get bigger it's not a flash in the pan you know this is the this might be the beginning but it's never going to stop exactly I guess, last question over to you, Mike. Where? Where is exciting right now for whiskey drinkers or just people that want to know somewhere exciting? Interesting. I think um, I think there are loads of really cool whiskey bars that you can go to in London and elsewhere. Um, I think part of the enjoyment of whiskey is, you know, sitting around a fire on a cold night on your own. But I think loads of the enjoyment of it is sitting at a bar talking to people about it. Um, I'm going to a bar called Spay tomorrow in Covent Garden, which is, um, which is, um, it's, I think, something to do with Craig Ellicke and has got, you know, an amazing selection of some really cool whiskey drinks and things like that. I think, um, I think even, even bars like Black Rock, which isn't new, but I think they do some really cool stuff with, introducing people to you know people that might have been like me 2013 2014 um with a great selection and, and will will do a great job at guiding people through the category um and then yeah i'd, I'd um i don't know maybe um retailers as well i think retailers are getting a um better and better selection and curated selection and more knowledgeable people again guiding consumers through it than ever um you know, we just we've just got some insight going up on on foodism from Japan Center, who have got obviously the, the you know probably the best selection of Japanese whiskey available in the country. Um, they're writing some stuff for us on again demystifying that category. People know, generally speaking, now that Japanese whiskey tends to be really acclaimed and hard to get. But what do you kind of what do you know about it more than that? Um, so yeah, I think I think really cool retailers and really great bars are always the places to go for people that want to kind of get up close and personal with that culture especially if they haven't haven't kind of demystified it too much before yes yes mate 100 percent. and the other thing i'd say i mean it, this this is very kind of um i don't know whether places like this do tours and open to the public but what really um i felt gave me a real um solid grounding in dark spirit specifically um i've been to two cooperages um so one was the brown former cooperage that i mentioned and the other was i think it's called tonero in cognac and i just think you and i i think talked talk before when i was at the distillery about the, the personality the character of a whiskey is in the distilling but the kind of meat that gets put on those bones is wood um and it's not to say that you can just put any liquid in a great cask and it'll come out delicious that's that's obviously not the case um and also in terms of of scotch and generally speaking the way english whiskey's made it's not using new oak anyway but i do think that if people are interested in dark spirits 
a cooperage is such a cool place to go because it, I think you really see, um, well, a that this that the, the kind of barrels are, are to an extent the thing that really power the whole industry, whether that's rum or cognac or bourbon or scotch or whatever, whether they're new or old or reused or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think being in that environment and just seeing how those barrels are made and then how they'll go on to be used, I think really it's a it's an amazing pretty amazing experience so i don't know whether it's going to be high up on people's list to go on holiday and take all their mates to a cooperage for the day um when it's really hot outside and they can just get up close and personal with massive columns of fire like i did but um <laughs> i don't know but maybe that's what that's more one for the um the kind of industry people among us if they ever get the chance to go to to do something like that um because dark spirits are dark for a reason right and it's and it's all about yeah the wood and, and how the, that wood is used and, and what character it imparts and things like that. And I think, you know, I think that is, um, you know, I think that's a really cool thing to see. And then otherwise, I'd just say, I think circling back to what we said at the beginning of the episode is there's so much money, but also time and passion and creativity and energy being putting it, being put into these um, experiences at distilleries and, at, and visitor centers and, and tastings and things like that. And it really is like, I, I've, bars of the other place but i would just suggest to everyone that's interested in whiskey or rum or cognac or dark spirits or wine or wherever to just go you know find places to go whether you're visiting somewhere and there's a little local winery or you know you're you, you're going to a little place near cognac and, and you can pop into a little brandy distillery or something like that um i just think it's so good for giving you that real hit of information and that sense of place and i think the sense of place is so important in everything that we do um it's so important to communicate that and it's it's at the end of the day it's kind of it's really it's a huge part of why people enjoy um wine and spirits so i'd just say um whether it's kind of big or small or acclaimed or no one's ever heard of it um you know go to take the opportunity where you can to go to these places and see what they do up front most of them are so forthcoming with you know the distilling process or you know i've i've done um kind of distillery trips with um the cognac marketing board that's super you know super specific but i've also done the east london liquor company with my wife and my mum and dad and my brother and his partner um and spent a day there getting you know absolutely shit-faced but learning loads about whiskey and seeing my seeing my parents learn more about gin and whiskey in ways that they didn't know before because in their you know their generation didn't spend holidays seeking out going to these places and if 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 wineries had cellar doors back then then you might have popped to a winery to buy some wine but really that's it, it's kind of chalk and cheese in, in terms of how it is now what you can get back from that experience and how much it can teach you so that's what i would say i think to anyone that's interested in anything across the category from wine to to unaged spirits to whiskey to cognac to rum to anything is just you know more places than you think in more areas than you think will be open for tours and tastings and be able to take you through it and and you you know i'm sure you what you walk out having bought a bottle that you'll enjoy at home and think back to it and with a bit more um contextual knowledge and information and that's real that's really the stuff that powers your enjoyment i think is when you start to go this isn't something abstract this is something i can actually cling on to um so that is that's the kind of one thing i suggest to anyone whether they're industry or not is just to go go and seek this stuff out because it's because it's pretty much everywhere now there's 50 distilleries in England alone making whiskey, so there's no excuse. Get out there and get to a distillery. Even if you're not into it, chances are you might be by the end. Exactly that. Okay, well, we're about to wrap up. So, Mike Gibson, I am truly grateful for all of your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I guess the last part of the show really is just about if people want to get in touch with you or find you, you know, tell, me, tell them about escapism, foodism, and everything else that you want people to know. Absolutely, yeah. So, foodism is is kind of our, our bread and butter, and what most what most people that are going to be listening to this are would probably gravitate towards. Like I said, we're not an industry publication, and we're not drink specific. So, how we cover drinks tends to be with a kind of generalist approach. But what we also try and try and cover is that sense of place that's inherent in, um, you know, either bartending or or distilling or winemaking or, or things like that. So, um, you know, we've got plenty of drinks content on London bars, but also distilleries around the world and, and drinks making culture and things like that. Um, we're on foodism.co.uk um, and you can find us on social pretty easily. Um, yeah. And we've got, you know, we always try and, and, and talk about 
what's interesting and inspiring and, and upcoming in food and drink culture. Um, so hopefully people that are listening to this will um, will love to check that out as well. And if you like travel, we also do Escapers and that's the other one that I edit, which is um, a little fair bit of food and drink in that as well, but it's kind of travel inspiration, things like that. Um, so yeah, if, if anyone's found this interesting, then, then, you know, it's kind of more of the same one there, hopefully with the same spirit. Mike, thank you ever so much, mate. I look forward to catching up with you very soon. Thanks for having me, Rob. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Cotswolds Distillery, a grain-to-glass distillery based in the Cotswolds National Landscape, a designated area of outstanding natural beauty and the home of England's best-selling single malt whiskey. Our philosophy is simple. We make delicious spirits in a beautiful part of the world. The Cotswolds Distillery. Our spirit, your whiskey. Your whiskey.